0: Book One, Chapter Four, of Under the Witch's Moon. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Under the Witch's Moon, by Nathan Galizier. Book One, Chapter Four, The Way of the Cross. It was late on the following morning when Tristan waked. The sun was high in the heavens, and the perfumes from a thousand gardens were wafted to his nostrils. He looked about bewildered. The dream phantoms of the night still held his senses captive, and it was some time ere he came to a realization of the present. In the dream of the night he had lived over a scene in the past, conjuring back the memory of one who had sent him on the way of the cross. The pitiless rays of the Roman sun, which began to envelop the white houses and walls, brought with them the realization of the present hour. He had come to Rome to do penance, to start life anew and to forget, so she had bade him do on that never-to-be-forgotten eve of their parting. For she had willed it, and he had obeyed. How it all flooded back to him again in waves of anguish, the memory of those days when the turrets of Avalon had faded from his aching sight, when, together with a motley pilgrim's throng, he had tramped the dusty sun-baked road, dead to all about him save the love that was cushioned in his heart how that parting from Helene still dominated all other events, even though life and the world had fallen away from him, and he had only prayer for oblivion, for obliteration. Yet even Helene's inexorable decree would not have availed to speed him on a pilgrimage so fraught with hopelessness, that during all that long journey Tristan hardly exchanged word or greeting with his fellow-pilgrims it was her resolve unfalteringly avowed to leave the world and enter a convent if he refused to obey which had eventually compelled her own self-imposed penance should henceforth be to live lonely and heartbroken by the side of an unbeloved consort while tristan atoned far away in the city of the popes at the shrines of the saints at night, when Tristan retired, at dawn, when he arose, Helene's memory was with him, and every league that increased the distance between them seemed to heighten his love and his anguish. But human endurance has its limits, and at last he was seized by a great torpor, a chill indifference that swept away and deadened every other feeling. There was no longer a to-day, no longer a yesterday, no longer a to-morrow such was tristan's state of mind when from the tybertine road he first sighted the walls and towers of rome without definite purpose or aim drawn along as it were towards an uncertain goal by fate's invisible hand utterly indifferent as to what might befall among the seven hills He was at times dimly conscious of a presentiment that ultimately he would end up his own days in one of those silent places where all earthly hopes and desires are forever stilled. So much was clear to him. Like the rest of the pilgrims who had wended their way to St. Peter's seat, he would complete the circuit of the holy shrines, kiss the feet of the Father of Christendom, do such penance as the Pontiff should impose, and then attach himself to one party or another in the pontifical city which held out hope for action, since the return to his own native land was barred to him for evermore. How he would bear up under the ordeal he did not know! How he would support life away from Helene, without a word, a message, without the assurance that all was well with her, whether now, his own fate accomplished, others thronged about her in love and adulation, he knew not. For the nonce he was resolved to let new scenes, new impressions, sweep away the great void of an aching heart, lighten the despair that filled his soul. In approaching the Eternal City he had felt scarcely any of the elevation of spirit which has affected so many devout pilgrims. He knew it was the seat of God's earthly vice-regent, the capital of the universal kingdom of the Church. He reminded himself of this, and of the priceless relics it contained the tombs of the Apostles, St. Peter, and St. Paul, the tombs of so many other martyrs, pontiffs, and saints. But in spite of all these memories he drew near the place with a sinking dread, as if by some instinctive premonition he felt himself dragged to the cross, on which at last he was to be crucified. Many a pilgrim may have seen Rome for the first time with an involuntary recollection of her past, with the hope that for him too the future might hold the highest greatness. Certainly no ambitious fancy cast a halo of romantic hope over the great city as Tristan first saw her ancient walls. He felt safe enough from any danger of greatness. He had nothing to recommend him. On the contrary, something in his character would only serve to isolate him, creating neither admiration nor sympathy. All the weary road to Rome, the Rome he dreaded had he prayed for courage to cast himself at the feet of the vicar of Christ. He did not think then of the Pope, as one of the great of the earth, but simply as one who stood in the world in God's place. So he would have courage to seek him, confess to him, and ask him what it was it behooved him to do. Thus he had walked on, with stammering steps, bruising his feet against the stones, tearing himself through briars, heeding nothing by the way and now the journey accomplished he was here in supreme loneliness without guidance human or divine thrown upon himself not knowing how to still the pain how to fill the void of an aching heart would the light of truth come to him out of the encompassing realms of doubt when tristan descended into the great guest chamber he found it almost deserted the pilgrims had set out early in the day to begin their devotions before the shrines The host of the golden shield placed before his sombre and silent guest such viands as the latter found most palatable, consisting of goat's milk, stewed lamb, barley bread, and figs, and Tristan did ample justice to the savoury repast. The heat of the day being intense, he resolved to wait until the sun should be fairly on his downward course before he started out upon his own business. A resolution which was strengthened by a suggestion from the host that few ventured abroad in Rome during the siesta hours, the Roman fever respecting neither rank nor garb. Thus Tristan composed himself to patience, watching the host upon his duties, and permitting his gaze to roam now and then through the narrow windows upon the object he had first encountered upon his arrival—the brown citadel, drowsing unresponsive in the noontide glow, a monument of mystery and dark deeds the Mausoleum of the Flavian Emperor, or, as it was styled at the period of our story, the Castle of the Archangel. From this stronghold, less than a decade ago, a woman had lorded it over the city of Rome, as renowned for her evil beauty as for the prolificacy and licentiousness of her court. In time her regime had been swept away, yet there were rumors, dark and sinister, of one who had succeeded to her evil estate. None dared openly avow it. But Tristan had surprised guarded whispers during his long journey. Some accounted her a sorceress, some a thing wholly evil, some the precursor of the Antichrist. And he had never ceased to wonder at the tales which enlivened the campfires, the reports of her beauty, her daring, her unscrupulous ambition. On the whole, Tristan's prospects in Rome seemed barren enough service might perchance be obtained with the Senator, who would doubtlessly welcome a stout arm and a true heart. This alternative failing, Tristan was utterly at sea as to what he would do, the prescribed rounds of obediences before the Shrines, and the penances accomplished. He felt as one who has lost his purpose in life, even before he had been conscious of his goal. The Strange incidents of His First Night in Rome had gradually faded from Tristan's mind with the reawakening memory of Hellayne, never once forgotten, but for the moment drowned in the deluge of strange events that had almost swept him off his feet. As the sun was veering towards the west and the lengthening shadows, presaging dusk began to roll down from the hills, it suffered Tristan no longer in the inn of the golden shield. He strode out and made for the heart of Rome. The desolate aspect of high noon had changed materially. Tristan began to note the evidences of life in the pontifical city. Merchants, beggars, monks, men-at-arms, condottieri, sbirri, the followers of the great feudal houses hurried to and fro, bent upon their respective pursuits, and above them, silent and fateful in the evening glow, towered the archangel's castle. The tomb of a former master of the world it reared its massive honey-coloured bulk on the edge of the yellow Tiber, and beyond rose the dark green cypresses of the Pincian hill. Innumerable spires, domes, pinnacles, and towers rose, red-litten by the sunset, into the stilly evening air. Bells were softly tolling, and a distant hum, like the bourdon note of a great organ, rose up from the other side of the Tiber where the multitudes of the Eternal City trod the dust of the Caesars into the churches of the Cross. Interminable processions traversed the city amidst anthems and chants, for on this day Masses were being sung, and services offered up in the Lateran Basilica, the Mother Church of Rome, in honor of him who cried in the wilderness. In silent awe and wonder Tristan pursued his way towards the heart of the city and as he did so the spectacle which had unfolded itself to his gaze became more varied and manifold on every turn. The lone pilgrim could not but admit that the shadows of worldly empire which had deserted her still clung to Rome in her ruins, even though to him the desolation which dominated all sides had but a vague and dreamlike meaning. Even at this period of deepest darkness and humiliation the world still converged upon Rome and in the very centre of the web sat the successor of st peter the appointed guardian of heaven and earth the chief pagan monuments still existed the pantheon of agrippa and the septizonium of alexander severus the mighty remains of the ancient fanes about the forum and the stupendous ruins of the Colosseum. but among them rose the fortress towers of the roman nobles right there before him dominating the narrow thoroughfare rose the great fortress-pile of the Frangipani, behind the arch of the Seven Candles. Farther on the tomb of Cecilia Metella presented an aspect at once sinister and menacing, transformed as it now was into the stronghold of the Sensi, while the Satani castle on the opposite side attracted a sort of wondering attention from him. This, then, was the Rome of which he had heard such marvellous tales. The city of palaces, basilicas, and shrines had sunk to this. Her magnificent thoroughfares had become squalid streets. Her monuments were crumbled and forgotten, or worse, they were abused by every lawless wretch who cared to seize upon them and build thereon his fortress or palace. A dismal fate, indeed, to have fallen to the former mistress of the world. Far better, he thought, to be deserted and forgotten utterly like many a former seat of empire, far better to be overgrown with grass and dock and nettle, to be left to dream and oblivion than to survive in low estate, as had this city on the banks of the Tiber. With these reflections, engendered no less by the air of desolation than by the occasional appearance of armed bands of feudal soldiery who hurled defiance at each other, Tristan found himself drawn deeper and deeper into the heart of Rome, a hotbed of open and silent rebellion against the rule of any one who dared to lord it over the degenerate descendants of the former masters of the world here representatives of the nations of all the earth jostled one another and the poor dregs of romulus or peoples of wilder aspect from persia or egypt within whose mind floated mysterious oriental wisdom bequeathed from the dawn of time and as the scope of tristan's observation widened the demon of disillusion unfolded gloomy wings over the far horizon of his soul, and the Tiber rolled calmly on below, catching in its turbid waves the golden sunset glow. Now and then he encountered the armed retinue of some feudal baron clattering along the narrow ill-paved streets, chasing pedestrians into adjacent doorways and porticoes, and pursuing their precipitate retreat with outbursts of banter and mirth. Unfamiliar as Tristan was with the factions that usurped the dominion of the Seven Hills, the escutcheons and coats of arms of these marauding parties meant little to him. Now and then, however, it would chance that two rival factions clashed, each disputing the other's passage. Then only did he become alive to the dangers that beset the unwary in the city of the Pontiff and a sudden spirit of recklessness and daring, born of the moment, prompted the desire to plunge into this seething vortex, if but to purchase temporary oblivion and relief. He faced the many dangers of the streets, loitering here and there, and curiously eyeing all things, and would eventually have lost himself, when the mantle of night began to fall on the seven hills, had he not instinctively remarked that the ascending road removed him from the river. End of Book One, Chapter Four